It's night time, and they are up on the castle balustrade. Hamlet and Horatio are talking. And then suddenly, Hamlet's ghost father appears, and they talk to him. And Hamlet goes away with his father. Marcellus speaks some of possibly the most famous words in the whole of Shakespeare's writing. As they're listening from the top of the castle down into the castle grounds and they hear the drunken reveling of the soldiers... He turns to Horatio and he says, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Horatio says, God will guide it. As if to say, it's helpless for us to try to solve this problem. But there is something rotten. It's amazing, isn't it, how powerfully certain stories are able to capture the reality of our existence. Let's not forget that that is one of the great powers of storytelling. That's why Shakespeare, Dickens and the likes use words in the way that they do. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark to shout out to us, to say, to ask the question, is it that bad? You know, when we turn to this particular section, Let us not allow millennia of time to separate us from the stark message there is something rotten in the court of King Xerxes. There is something desperately, desperately wrong. The way the story unfolds is designed to make us see that, to cause us to think, is it this bad? And the storyteller says yes. Here we have this young woman, Esther. If you haven't been able to keep up with the story up to now, she's a 13 to 16-year-old young girl as she's taken into Uh, the court of King Xerxes, gathered together with a whole number of other beautiful young virgin women to be taken into the harem of the king. She's uh, taken without any kind, she didn't apply for the job, she's just taken because the king has made an edict. The reason he's made the edict is because he is absolutely furious that his previous queen, has disobeyed his demand to come and present herself as a beautiful object in front of all of his friends. As a result of that, this young woman finds herself in the harem. Maybe up to a thousand women were taken. Isn't that an incredible number? Maybe up to a thousand young women were taken. Well, how do we know this? Why might that be suggested? She has now been in this place for quite some time. 
We read later on uh, in verse 16 of our reading, we read this. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tabath, in the 7th, 7th year of his reign. The seventh year of his reign, she's taken uh, in to to be with the king. We read that the incident with Vashti, the one that kicked the whole thing off, was in the third year of his reign. We read that in chapter 1. So here, it's not clear. The narrator doesn't give us an absolute sort of diary set of events. But what he does say is in the third year of his reign, He falls out with his queen, dismisses her, and raises a royal edict. Uh, And sometime after that, sometime after that, at the beginning of chapter 2, however long that might be, could be anything from a few weeks to a a month, a couple of months, three months, he then sends out an edict to gather women in. And now we are in three, possibly three years later. Here's this young woman who has been separated, ripped away from her family. Uh, She already has gone through a huge amount of personal, personal distress. She's actually a young orphan in a sense. Her mother and father have died and she's been taken into care by her caring older cousin Mordecai, and now after all of that, that sort of beautiful family picture is tragically uh, broken apart as she's taken, and she just, it seems as though a huge period of time has gone by where she is just in the hurry, just in the hurry. We, we also know that for at least a year of that, she was being prepared, we'll come to that in a few minutes. But doesn't it ask a question? Doesn't that, when we think about how that story unfolds, doesn't doesn't that just strike you as powerful? We've got two to three years of time, which is accounted for in literally recognizing the time difference in a couple of verses. That's it. The story is actually covering two to three years. Let me ask you a question. What were you doing two to three years ago? What were you doing? Two to three three years ago, actually, um, almost to the day, we signed the contract on coming into this unit three years ago. The kind of length of time that this young woman was in the harem. It's incredible, isn't it? I think many of us in that kind of situation, when we are faced with harsh issues of life, when it seems to go on and on and on and on, when it seems never-ending, there is a real danger that we can think that God has abandoned us, that somehow we have lost favor in God's eyes, that in some way or another he has dismissed us. At best, all of those might be the case. At worst, we might even doubt whether he loves us 
Or even worse, we might even doubt whether he exists. Because that's what harsh realities of living tend to do to us in our own strength alone. And yet what we see, and one of the reasons why this story is written in the way that it is, is to say, to remind us, to to throw out in front of us, on the one hand, here's this young woman who is living in a desperately difficult situation at the hands of horrific injustice, and yet the way the story is unfolding is to say, all the time, God is working. All the time God is working. It's not as though God drops in at key moments and says, oh, I'd better... It's, it's not as though God is, if you like, juggling plates. Uh, and he juggles this, he sort of spins this plate over here and then has to dash over and spin your plate for a little while. Uh, and then dash over and spin somebody else's. And while he's spinning somebody else's, he's absent for, the, for your plate. And it f- seems as if it's beginning to topple. And he dashes back and he spins it a little bit more. That is not the way that God is working. That's not the way it's presented. It's presented in such a way that in the silence, God is working. When it seems as though he is distant, he has the sovereign ability and the sovereign will and the sovereign determination and the sovereign love and the sovereign affection for his people to spin every single plate all of the time. He is in every situation. He is behind every situation. Every situation in some remarkable way is working, shaping, being used, being uh, moved for your good, for my good, for the good of all of God's people, for His glory. Somehow, somehow, that's what the story wants to encourage us with. While Esther seems to be just abandoned in this hari, God is there. Three long years of silence and God is working. It seems to me that as we see this story uh, open up for us, in verse 10 we read, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background Because Mordecai had forbidden her to do it. It seems as though that's wanting to ask the question, Esther, who are you? Who who are you? Now. You know, it was really clear when you were in your family, it was really clear as Hadassah, when you would uh, move from the marketplace into your uh, family of identity, of, of who you were, not just... Uh, a, a young woman in that family situation, but someone with, as, with absolute identity. We are the people of God. And now she finds herself in a situation where that seems to be removed. She's no longer referred to as Hadassah. She is Esther and Esther only. And she is not able absolutely, clearly, openly, obviously to live out her life with the identity of who she is. She doesn't have that freedom. She doesn't have that liberty. She is effectively a prisoner stripped 
of her identity. Stripped of her identity. Who are you, Esther? I suppose that asks, causes us to ask questions. How do we see ourselves? If we stand alongside Esther, what is the definition of who you are? What is the definition of who I am? Here we are. We're not living in a harem. We're not living in ancient Persia. We're not living... And yet, at the same time, who are we? How are we identified? What makes you, you? And what makes me, me? Look at the way the story unfolds in verse 12. The context that she is in creates an identity for her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Isn't that interesting? Well, I mean, apart from the fact that it is kind of beyond excess which is partly the way the story is continually being told. Do you see that? Every little bit about the way the story is told is, is in huge kind of ideas. He holds a, a display of his glory at the beginning of chapter 1 for 180 days. He has a party for seven days. He collects beautiful women in countless numbers. He sends an edict to every part of the, uh, the empire in every tongue. He now has uh, a beauty treatment prepared for him so that every woman who goes into him night by night by night, has already spent 12 months in beauty treatment. It's just, it's just crazy, isn't it? And yet, what is it, what is it saying? It's saying that uh, for you, as an individual, as a woman, to be ready for this king, we will, from the outside shape who you are. We will prepare you from the outside to be ready for the king. Now let's just stop and think. Just consider what is going on there. Three years and each night a woman is taken to the king. Each night a woman has been prepared for 12 months to be ready to go in to the king for one night. So that the king can have this, just this endless beauty parade of women until he decides which one suits him. Her identity is hidden. A new identity is shaped on her so that the king can decide whether she is acceptable for him. What a horrible picture. What a shocking display. And yet, I I want to suggest to you, in our world today, I think we need to stop just for a minute and say, is it that unusual? Is it really that unusual 
Let's go back to the question that we asked a few minutes ago. Who are you? Who defines your identity? Who decides what makes you acceptable or not acceptable in this world in which we live? In other words, Esther is stripped of her true identity to have another outer identity placed on her. So that the identity is what we decide it to be, what we create, what we manage, what we shape. Twelve months of work makes her something which she previously wasn't. That's the idea that goes into this portrayal. But at a deeper level, there is something even worse. Twelve months of preparation for her to be an object to be used. That's what it is. You are there for the king to use you. And that's why I said right at the beginning, part of the purpose of these stories is so that we might be shocked, so that we might say there is something desperately wrong here. I look at this and portrayed before me is the idea that one man's desire is to objectify a a thousand women objectify a thousand women, strip them of the identity of who they are, create new identities from the outside so that they might be used. Isn't it terrible? Is it that different? Is it that different in the world that we now living? Or is it incredibly relevant? Couldn't we say in a way that this story is written for just a time as this? Because it speaks so powerfully, it speaks with such clarity at the kind of issues that have been exploding in our press over the past month. Even in the past months, the objectifying of individuals, the creating of individuals so that they are no longer an identity, they are no longer a person, they are an object to be used. And we throw our hands up absolutely, rightly, terrible at the way that is done. And then we realize that our kings, the kings that we have that are ruling our world are doing it all the time. All the time. There is a countless stream of ways in which our identity as men and women made in the image of God with an inner quality, with an inner being, with an inner identity which is greater than the outside is being stripped of that and we are being objectified to be used. This is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. 
In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashkaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summon her by name. The king sets the tone for the rest of the people. You know, I think that idea is one of the most important concepts that we see in the Bible. The king sets the tone for the people. In other words, the way the king is, is the way the king says all of the people should be. And the king sets the tone here to say, it is perfectly acceptable for me to consider every other person around me as an object to be used until I decide that there is one that is worthwhile. And our kings do exactly the same. I think our kings are perhaps not sitting on thrones in physical palaces. Maybe our kings are kings of the internet, kings of music, kings of fashion, kings of money. Here's a startling fact. We might, and I was reading a a news article from, I think it was the Telegraph, Guardian or the Telegraph, in the past couple of days. Quite rightly, absolutely rightly, just raising the issue of child pornography online, quite rightly, and yet at the same time so helpfully creating in our thinking the realization that this horror that we all quite rightly throw up our hands and say that has to stop is not disconnected, is not disconnected from the absolute explosion of general pornography online. It is not disconnected. Not written by a Christian. That is not a Christian's perspective, although it certainly is this Christian's perspective that there is a connection between the two. That is a newspaper article that is saying, society, stop and think and listen. There is a connection between that horror that we think and quite rightly needs to be eradicated and we say that the internet giants and the kings of the internet need to do something about it and need to stop because that is objectifying our children. And yet at the same time we are objectifying women and we are objectifying men with a constant stream of internet pornography. Stripped of identity, stripped of reality, stripped of any sense of what we are in the dignity of men and women created in the image of God. And they are connected. And they are connected because they both make human beings objects to be used. Oh yeah, Xerxes... There was no internet then, but he had the power to gather together a thousand women from across the empire. He could just do it. 
Because his satisfaction was at the very center of everything. Here's a shocking statistic. Why is it that we won't do anything about that? Because 36% of internet revenue is based on pornography. 36%, a third of the revenue of the internet is based on pornography. That is why we will not stop it. That is why the kings will not stop it. Because as we objectify individuals with that kind of behavior, in a sense, every single one of us are are being used. (laughs) Because the internet is just a way for us to be used to generate money, to make money, to feed desires, to, to strip us of who we are as human beings. You know, one of the things that we constantly see is that we take good things as human beings. We take good things and we twist them and we pervert them and we mess them up and we make good things in our minds. They become ultimate to us. But in becoming ultimate to us, we strip them of their good and twist pervert them, and twist them. Do not think, do not think that I'm on some kind of a sort of anti-internet rant here. You know, the internet is mind-blowingly amazing. And yet, doesn't it again and again throw before us that there is something rotten in the state of planet earth. There is something rotten. We cannot. We cannot self-administer. We cannot. We are unable to because we find ourselves in conflict with other things. We cannot just decide, right, we will switch off all of that uh, objectifying and using of India. We can't do it because it generates so much money. (laughs) What a shocking place. What a terrible situation that we end up in. And yet, in this story, we have little shoots of hope. Little pictures of God working. In the middle of all of that, We have this continuous, it just repeats itself. Again and again it comes up in this particular story. Verse 17 says, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head. And made her queen instead of Vashti. It's a mess. You know, this, let, let's be honest. This isn't turning a terrible situation into a great situation. In real terms, this young woman has been taken into the king to be raped for a night. And yet somehow, somehow in that horror... 
God is causing this young woman once again to be favored. She's already been favored by the chief of the eunuchs. There is something not on her outside. Do you see the way that that story unfolds? There is something that is not to do with the 12 months of beauty treatment, which every single other woman had had who went into the king. There is not on the outside. There is something compelling in the character of Esther. Something that is moving in the character of Esther, which ties her to every other occasion in the whole of the Bible where somebody finds favor in spite of the fact that in human terms they shouldn't. In spite of the fact that it seems impossible. We see it in the Old Testament. Do you know we see it in the New Testament as well? There's something about John the Baptist. John the Baptist found favor with King Herod. He wanted to hear him. Again and again he wanted to hear him in spite of the fact that he was direct, he was clear, he was pointing out the issues, he was stressing to King Herod, you have got a problem. And yet again we find ultimately... He was tricked into killing him. But there was something compelling about John the Baptist. In exactly the same way, there is something compelling in this young woman. She doesn't use the opportunity. We we read it in verse uh, 13 and 14. She has the opportunity to take with her from the harem something to the king's palace. Something that would, if you like, endear her to the king. Something that would you, she would use to kind of win favor. I'm guessing that the reason that the uh, narrator includes that in that particular section is because he wants us to start to think, contrasting the behavior of Esther, the pattern of Esther compared to others. In other words, the fact that she didn't take something in is startling. It's different. In other words, she is going into that situation and she is not seeing it. As her one chance in life. What's on offer? What is on offer? You've already been kept captive for years as a young woman. You've already been kept captive. You've already been kind of indoctrinated into a pattern of being. You've already been shaped into a way that is going to be for you, as far as you know, for the rest of your life. Do you see how it works? You are taken into the harem, you have one night with the king, then you go to another part of the harem, because no other man can have you after the king. This is your life. You are now a prisoner. And so, if you like, the only possible escape in that indoctrinated, perverse, corrupt environment is to try to find a way to win the king's favor. What's on offer? The crown of the queen. And yet Esther does not act in a way to win the crown. 
She doesn't take anything from the harem. She doesn't use it as her opportunity to get out of this situation. And yet, she is the one who the king favors. Because there is something written deep down inside her. There is something that is moving inside of her. There is something in her that God is using and shaping and developing in this young woman. Here, quite honestly, is a woman of character. You know... In our society today, with a corrupt, perverse attitude of men towards women, one of the sad things to see is that a considerable response is to react in a behavior which plays up to that. How sad. How sad that we live in a world like that that we live in a world where neither men or women are becoming men and women of character. Men and women who are thinking, how am I going to be in this mess of a world? Esther had no choice. But we see the signs here that she was a woman of character because God had created that character in her. Who are you? Who are you? Who am I? Am I a man or a woman who has the Spirit of God working in me? Who I need to be listening to? Who I need to be asking for? Who I need to be ever shaped day by day, little by little, more by more, so that I might be a man or a woman of character? Distinct. Living in a crazy, messed up, Shocking world and yet different. That's one of the things that this story would throw up in front of us. She had no identity in that harem, but you know what? She'd never forgotten what her true identity was. She knew. You can do whatever to the outside of me, but inside of me, my real identity is Hadassah. I am born of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew. I am one of God's people. I've never forgotten that. You can do all sorts of things to me from the outside. You can imprison me. You can strip me of my liberty. You can cover me in oil and perfumes for a year. But I will never forget who I really am deep down inside. Esther is a champion. She stands there as somebody who represents to us what it is to be in a messed up world, one of the people of God. Because God is working in her. Because God is working in her. Don't ever walk away and think, oh well I've got to, I've got to work really hard now to be like an Esther. I guess that Esther deep down was on her knees again and again praying, Father, Yahweh, will you keep me? Will you keep me just one more day, Yahweh? 
in this mess, in this horrible place, will you keep me? Will you sustain my identity in this terrible place where you are not known, where you are dismissed, where the king seems to be so much more powerful than you are? Will you keep me? Is that our, is that our plea day to day? Every day do we wake up and do we realize that actually we are like uh, Esther, brother and sister, we are like Esther. We are effectively living in the harem of this world. We are separated and isolated from God. We are not living in Jerusalem. We are living imprisoned in this world and yet we are liberated and we are free in our identity in Jesus. And we rely on it and we need it and we need it more than anything because we, if, we, if we lose that, then the only identity that we have is what's on the outside. When our identity is on the outside, we're used by this world. But when our identity is in Jesus, we are owned by the next world. How do we know? How do we know that that might be possible for us? Well, actually, once again, I think, one king is presented against another greater king. This king, King Xerxes, needs for every individual who comes into his presence to be prepared for him. To spend a year of beautifying. So that what he looks at on the outside is acceptable to him. So that they are ready to be in his presence. Where does God look? Where does God look? He looks in our hearts, the Bible tells us. And the harsh reality of this, and I want to suggest that I, I suspect that this is why we put all of the emphasis on the outside. Because when we look inside, we realize how grim it actually is. So we put all of the effort on the outside. And we detract our thinking from what's inside and focus on what's outside. When we know our hearts... And yet God looks on the inside and we read in Romans this. God demonstrates His own love for us. He demonstrates His love for us in this way. How does He demonstrate His love? While we were sinners... Christ died for us. I want you to imagine just for a moment what it would look like if Esther was dragged out of the fields at the end of the day, having spent a day in the baking sun, covered in muck, sweating, unprepared, stinking, filthy. And dragged into the presence of the king. Can you imagine what that would have been? She had to spend a year 
to be ready. And yet we are dragged into the presence of the king in just that state. While we are filthy and a mess, we come into the presence of the king. He loves us in that state. He loves us in that state. He doesn't say, he does not say, for you to be ready to come into my presence, you've got to get yourself cleaned up. You've got to tidy up. You've got to smarten up. You've got to freshen up. You've got to smell nice to come into my presence. He doesn't say that. He says, you can come into my presence while you are a mess because I love you. But you know, the great thing is he says, I'm not going to keep you in that mess. It's as though the king himself takes a stinking, sweating, muck covered Esther and takes her and bathes her and freshens her and cleans her up and makes her presentable to him. That's what our king does. That's what our king does. He takes us while we're a mess and he makes us clean. He doesn't say, get yourself clean so that you can come to me. Our king cleans us up. How does he clean us up? How is that astounding grace shown to us? It's shown to us by that astoundingly clean, pure king coming and getting messed up in Jesus. That's the remarkable truth that we see in the Bible. The king doesn't stand back and say, you've got to be right. Until you're right, you can't come to me. He says, I know you're a mess. I know you're filthy. I know when I look at you, you stink. But I'm going to make you clean. And the way that I'm going to make you clean is by exchanging your filth for my righteousness. And I will become filthy instead. I'll become filthy instead. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that remarkable? There's an advert on TV at the moment. It's got, um, I think it's for an insurance company. It's got a, a, a really filthy, muddy mountain bike up, upside down on its seat and handlebars. And, and somebody comes up to it with one of these jet washes. And he jet washes this bike and suddenly the bike is gleaming. And all of the mess and the muck from the bike has sprayed all over the person who's cleaning it. They've become filthy so that the bike can become clean. (laughs) Do you know what? Our filth, our filth is just poured all over Jesus. It's poured all over him. In fact, he doesn't stand back and allow it to happen. He goes and he takes it. And he he makes it his. He makes your filth his own. So that we can come into the presence of a king who will never abuse us, who will never use us, who will never decide, "Mm, yeah, I've had this one. And I've forgotten her name. Who will accept every single one who comes to him. And will cleanse them. And clothe them in robes of righteousness. 
and present them beautiful as his bride. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that such a contrast to King Xerxes? Because after all, of course, a king does need a beautiful bride. Which is precisely what we see at the end of the Bible. A beautiful bride. Look at how the story finally emerges at this introduction. The king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. (laughs) You know, if we've got our minds into the way the Bible unfolds, that should just spark thoughts. There's going to come a day when the whole of the church, every one of God's people, is going to be just like a bride and it's going to be like a coronation. Just like a coronation. It's going to finally be seen as the bride. And every creature in all of the cosmos is going to see effectively that crown go on the head of God's people. And there is going to be the most astounding banquet laid out. And it is going to be an eternal feast of joy and celebration. Because at least what this says is this king was delighted. Delighted in Esther. He was delighted in Esther. But Jesus is way more delighted in his his queen. In his bride. You and me, if we trust and believe in Him. 